Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. In today's seminar, we're going to be discussing the Bitcoin Mining Council, a consortium of mining companies in North America that got together and issued a statement committing to revealing the energy mix that they use in their mining. So I thought this was pretty notable and worth discussing uh, today. First of all, it's, I think, worth notable because it is, to a very large extent, to a creepy extent, exactly what I was discussing in the episode uh, on the Fiat Rockefeller 
on Elon Musk. In that episode, I'd mentioned how what I see Elon Musk doing is trying to bring in the business model of Tesla, which is trading on subsidies and renewable energy credits and propagating the idea that some sources of energy are clean and good and nice and dandy while others are dirty and bad and evil. And if you use the clean and good and nice and dandy energies, then you should get paid by the evil baddies who use the bad energy. Based on that, I think this has been an enormous boost for Tesla's profit. Arguably, I would say Tesla wouldn't operate without it. And I think the entirety of the electric car industry, I can't see it being as big as it is or anywhere near as big as it is, to be more accurate, were it not for government subsidies and mandates and regulations and all kinds of demands that are placed on car producers that make electric cars become less uneconomical than they otherwise would be on the free market. And so instead of using hard fuels like hydrocarbons for making cars, which is, I think, the cheaper, more economical way, a lot of car makers end up having to move toward electric cars. And that's because of all these interventions in the market. So It's very fascinating for me that Elon Musk wades into the Bitcoin and shitcoin arena and uh, also starts talking about uh, all of this energy stuff. The impact of this was that as soon as he started talking about Bitcoin not being green and not being acceptable to the church of Elon Musk for environmental greenness or whatever the hell they call it these days, once Bitcoin fell foul of the Silicon Valley media empire's definition of good and bad and evil and green and yellow and pink or whatever it is, Then it became an issue and the price of Bitcoin crashed. And obviously there were many other things that have to do with the price, but it's highly likely that the impact of Tesla buying into Bitcoin significantly affected the price upward. And likewise, the other way around, when Elon Musk started making noises about, oh, it's not environmentally sustainable and it hurts our emotional and environmental feelings, then the price of Bitcoin started dropping as well. And so as a result of this, Michael Saylor and a bunch of Bitcoin miners met with Elon Musk and committed to releasing data on the energy mix that they use. And the idea here is that Bitcoin miners are predominantly using renewable and green energy. And that because of that, Bitcoin shouldn't be getting the bad reputation it gets for being a carbon emitter and for being a pollutant. And so Elon Musk then tweets about this, saying something along the lines that he met with a bunch of miners and they committed to releasing data on their emissions and that this is potentially promising. And I think a lot of people in Bitcoin and the Bitcoin space were pretty hostile to the idea of a council of miners meeting together. If you've been in Bitcoin for a while, you've got post-traumatic stress disorder from hearing the word Bitcoin and council mentioned in the same paragraph. We remember Segwit2x and we remember all kinds of official sounding groups where people would get together and say, we want Bitcoin to do this, or we're going to change Bitcoin in that sense. And generally, these things have not gone down well. In fact, they've universally been met with devastating and complete failure at achieving uh, their goals, most important of which is the Segwit2x hard fork in November 2017. And I think this is a really landmark moment in Bitcoin's history. It was happening as I was finishing the Bitcoin standard. And so 
I could include it in the discussion in the Bitcoin standard at the last minute, which I think was an excellent addition because it was a direct illustration of the point that I was making in the book about Bitcoin being immutable and people not being able to change it easily. So I think that episode is an enormously important one. It carries a lot of lessons for today and for the future about Bitcoin. And in particular, of course, also about the difference between Bitcoin and other digital currencies, or we should say between Bitcoin and shitcoins, to use the technical term. The difference fundamentally is that with every digital currency other than Bitcoin, there can be a group of people who can get together and they can change things in the currency. They can change the supply, they can change the protocol consensus parameters, and they can affect a lot of different things in the network. But with Bitcoin, we saw with November 2017, we had the majority of mining hash power. We had the majority of mining equipment producers. We had the majority of Bitcoin businesses. And arguably, we had the majority of Bitcoin addresses. And when you think about all of the businesses that were allied in the uh, attempt to hard fork Bitcoin, they arguably controlled uh, so many of the Bitcoin addresses, a majority arguably, as well as a majority of the coins, most likely between them, these companies and their coins that they held for themselves, as well as for their clients, were probably, almost certainly, I would say, a majority of Bitcoin's coins. And with that, we had a massive attack, effectively, on Bitcoin's consensus parameters, that all these people got together and said, the only way to make Bitcoin grow is to double the block size, increase the block size, increase the number of transactions, and then Bitcoin will be able to scale better. But we saw, and I discussed some details in my book, The Bitcoin Standard, and also there's a new book that was released about this. I have not read it yet, but a lot of people I know have read it and recommend it very highly. It's called The Block Size War. I think Peter has read the book. Peter, can you confirm? Yeah, I have read the book. It's a really fascinating read. And it goes through a lot of detail regarding all the different players that there were on both sides of the the block size war from 2015 to 2017. Gavin Anderson, Craig Wright, all these characters. And the guy who does BitMEX research gives quite an impartial account of what happens. He's, He's very fair to both sides, I think. He explains the rationale for wanting to increase uh, Bitcoin's block size. But by the end of the book, it becomes very clear that the take-home message is, as you say, that it's ultimately the users of Bitcoin that control Bitcoin. Yeah, so in case the audio wasn't very clear, Peter was saying the main conclusion of the book is that Bitcoin is controlled by its users and the users are the ones who are able to dictate changes to the protocol, but most likely dictate no changes to the protocol. And that groups of Bitcoin service providers or groups of Bitcoin industry can't impose these things on users. And I think that was the lesson from November 2017, that ultimately, even with all of this money, all of the resources, all the Bitcoins, all the Bitcoin addresses, all the Bitcoin nodes that they were running, they could not force the network to upgrade. And effectively, what the attempt to hard fork Segwit2x came down to was they knew that they couldn't just implement this thing like a regular upgrade. You know, it isn't like PayPal or the Federal Reserve upgrading their payment system. It's not something that they can just do unilaterally and then force their users to accept and then have to watch whether the users leave or stay and possibly potentially have a monopoly. It's not like a central bank. In the case of Bitcoin, really 
I think a, a big part of it came down to trying to gaslight Bitcoiners into believing that if all of these important people and all of these big wallets and big whales and all of these Bitcoin personalities, all of these uh, people that are associated with Bitcoin, the people who led you into Bitcoin, the people you first heard about Bitcoin from, some of the very important early influencers were on board with this hard fork. And if all of those people are on board, then maybe everybody else will just jump on board and it'll uh, take off. Ultimately, they couldn't just pull that off. Ultimately, Bitcoin users called their bluff by essentially doing nothing, by refusing their upgrade. They had to not launch it. And then eventually it was launched as a shitcoin, which has continued to decline in value against Bitcoin since then. I mean, initially, it had a bunch of pumps where it went up and we had to suffer for a few months with a lot of delusional people telling us that this uh, Bcash thing is going to be the real Bitcoin. But within a few months, I think it became entirely clear that this thing is going nowhere. It's going to keep dropping in Bitcoin terms and that it's it acts almost like an IQ test for Bitcoin so that um, it prevents the least intelligent people from getting into Bitcoin. Because if you come into Bitcoin and you realize that, okay, well, you know, what Bitcoin needs is a centralized big block blockchain where uh, only a few people are able to run nodes and then these people have centralized nodes. Well, then you deserve to be in a shitcoin like Bcash and you're going to see how that works. So I think it worked out very well for Bitcoin. I think this was potentially the best thing that ever happened to Bitcoin uh, since its operations. After getting created, perhaps the most important thing that happened to Bitcoin was the fact that, well, maybe the number one thing was that somebody exchanged it for real economic value at some point. But possibly number two was November 2017 when uh, we had... An astonishingly strong coalition of a lot of people get together, try and change the Bitcoin protocol and fail. And I don't think we'll, you know, Bitcoin has grown a lot since then. And I don't think we'll get to another point where we can get such a strong extent of collusion between businesses and influencers and miners all getting together and wanting to change the protocol rules. I think it's not going to happen for two reasons. Number one, Bitcoin is much bigger. So now it's just much harder to herd all the cats from all over the world. And secondly, because of November 2017, the idea of Bitcoin being immutable, remaining important, I think everybody has been at least exposed to it. It might be that maybe not everybody agrees with it entirely, but everybody gets it. Everybody gets that a lot of Bitcoiners care about Bitcoin not changing because in their mind, if Bitcoin changes for one thing, then it'll change for anything. And then if it can change for anything, then that can change the monetary policy. So I highly doubt that we'll get anything anywhere near as big as Segwit2x hard fork attempt anytime soon. But having said that, we do get this um, Bitcoin mining castle, which seems like a coalition of industry groups getting together. But I think to illustrate the point that I was making, this is nowhere near as big a threat to Bitcoin as uh, the Segwit2x hard fork. I think this is just not comparable. And the main reason is that it is the miners. And it's something that I've said once in an interview and it uh, went viral and a lot of people keep quoting it all the time. The idea is Bitcoin's miners are Bitcoin's slaves. They're not Bitcoin's masters. The intuitive idea, and this is how I thought about it initially when I first started reading and learning about Bitcoin, in my mind, you think of the miners as being the people who run the protocol, people who control it, people who call the shots. You know, They have all that money, all these machines, all that electricity that they're spending. 
clearly those people must be in charge. And clearly, if they turn off those machines, then Bitcoin will die and we'll have no chance but to yield to them. And in general, whenever you hear somebody who's misinformed about Bitcoin try and explain why they are anti-Bitcoin or why they think Bitcoin won't work, generally, this is, uh, this is the, the, the summit of Mount Stupid, if you want. You know, there's that graph I've seen somewhere where as your knowledge increases, your appreciation of your knowledge increases. And then eventually you get to a point where you realize, oh, wait, as you start learning more, you start becoming less and less confident in what you know. After a lot more work and a lot more humility, your confidence begins to recover. And then you reach a point where you know a lot and also you think you know a little bit more, but not as much as you thought at the summit of Mount Stupid. Because the summit of Mount Stupid really is the pinnacle of the disconnect between what you actually know and what you think you know. And this is like the precise point in the case of Bitcoin is you start learning about Bitcoin, you read a couple of articles and you watch a few YouTube videos and you get the idea that the miners are securing the network. And then the first brain fart that comes to your mind is, aha, so the miners can just switch off their machines or the government will just take over the miners and then the miners will change the rules and then Bitcoin won't mine. And I've been trying my best in uh, many years, but it really only sunk in for everybody, I think, after 2017. And that's when it's been more popular to try and spread this because it became clear that it's, the miners don't decide the rules. The miners can't control what happens in the protocol. And if you want to really understand it in economic terms, if you want abstract away from the technical details of how Bitcoin works, how the proof of work happens and what the miners do and all of that. Ultimately, in the grand scheme, the big picture is that Bitcoin miners produce a search for proof of work blocks. They expend an enormous amount of uh, investment in order to get into the mining industry. They buy mining gear and they spend electricity to operate that mining gear and they connect to the internet. All of that involves costs upfront. And so you do that. And once they've incurred all of those costs, they try and find Bitcoin proof of work solutions. So they have to spend the money first and hope that they get the correct answer for the proof of work. And then if they get the correct answer for the proof of work, they can then sell it to the Bitcoin nodes. And the Bitcoin nodes will happily buy blocks from miners as long as the blocks adhere to the Bitcoin consensus parameters. And this is really the point, I think, that people miss about miners. Miners don't decide consensus parameters. Miners have to sell their blocks according to consensus parameters or they end up with a lot of worthless equipment and a lot of wasted electricity. And that's really the asymmetry that people miss, that miners have to make their expenditures upfront in order to hopefully get repaid from the network. And so once they've made that expenditure, they are in no position to <laughs> impose terms on the network. They've already spent all of their money and the network doesn't owe them shit. They are free to come and sell their blocks to the network if the blocks adhere to the consensus parameters, but the network won't change the consensus parameters in order to accept their blocks simply because mining is an open market. Mining is competitive. It's not a central bank. It's not the primitive monetary system 
where only one authority is able to decide who can mine new coins. It's open to anybody anywhere in the world. You don't have to even register anywhere. You don't have to include your identity or your name. You just need a satellite internet connection and you can hook up any amount of miners to anything that produces electricity and you're in business. You're out there and you're selling Bitcoin blocks. And so the notion that miners can just dictate consensus parameters implies that they have some sort of monopoly on the production of blocks, that miners have a monopoly on the production of blocks. And if they stop, so it's like it's just this one small cabal of people who control the production of blocks. And if they stop selling us blocks, they're going to keep the blocks for themselves. And then the Bitcoin network won't have blocks anymore. And then Bitcoin dies. That's not how it works. That's not how the economic reality of the model is. In reality, their investment is only valuable if they're able to monetize it by selling the correct proof-of-work solutions with the correct consensus rules for the network. If they can do that, then they can monetize the electricity and and the equipment that they have uh, utilized, and that makes their investment uh, profitable. But if they go by other consensus parameters, they can't force the network to take the blocks, and all that happens is that the network will buy the blocks from somebody else. So here the question becomes, well, what happens if the miners all collude together? And, you know, here we've got a few North American miners. It's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that all of the major mining companies in the U.S. and the world, the miners themselves and the hash rate manufacturers, if they all got together and said, all right, we're not going to mine anything except when the consensus rules are changed for this or that thing. The Segwit2x people had the idea because they also had a lot of mining hashing power at that time. And they had the idea that if the miners all agreed to not mine Bitcoin, well, then nobody will produce Bitcoin blocks and everybody will go to the chain that the miners are mining. And then everybody's going to move to the new hard fork and then the old Bitcoin dies and the new Bitcoin lives. That was the idea. But what ended up happening is that as those miners announced that they would stop producing Bitcoin blocks, what happened? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the fiat standard and the Bitcoin standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. 
Bitcoin continue to operate? How did Bitcoin continue to operate? Well, once those miners take their hash rate off the Bitcoin network and move it to some shitcoin network, what happens now is that the uh, amount of hash rate on the network is extremely low. You know, it drops, let's say, let's assume it was 95% of mining hash rate that decided to migrate out of the network. So 95% of the mining hash rate leaves the network. You're left with only 5%. So with that, you would expect that the blocks would come roughly in 20 times as much time as it took. So instead of 10 minutes, it would take like 200 minutes with that kind of hashing power to get the block reward. But that didn't happen. We didn't see that in Bitcoin. We had some interruptions. We had Bitcoin blocks slow down a little bit, but nothing all that out of the ordinary by Bitcoin standards. You know, slowdowns in block production do happen here and there. But what ended up happening was that the hashing rate just didn't actually migrate out of Bitcoin. Because as I was, you remember the example that I mentioned, if it was 95% left, well, that 5%, okay, it's going to take them longer time to mine the blocks. But when they mine the blocks, they're getting a much bigger share. All of these people are getting much bigger share of the coin rewards that are being distributed. So when all of these miners decide to stop mining Bitcoin and move toward mining a shitcoin, what they're doing is that they're making mining extremely profitable for everybody else who's mining Bitcoin. And that just guarantees that the hash rate is going to come back one way or the other by hook or crook whether it's new hash rate coming on or the old hash rate repenting and realizing you know this isn't going to work for us the hash rate is going to return and that's why we see you know bitcoin's hash rate is many hundreds of times larger than the hash rate behind uh, bcash or any of these other bitcoin forks so even though the miners said that they wanted to stop mining bitcoin that's ridiculous. They can't say that. It's an empty threat. It's the definition of an empty threat. And I think the key to Bitcoin winning in 2017 was that enough Bitcoiners, toxic Bitcoiners, realized and understood that this was an empty threat, that this is a bluff, that they can't pull this off, that the only way that they can pull this off is if they manage to convince everybody in Bitcoin, every single person in Bitcoin is convinced that they can pull it off because otherwise there's no way they can pull it off. If everybody changes the consensus parameters because they think, oh no, the miners are going to attack the network and that's going to ruin the network and then that's going to give us bad headlines and that's going to make our coins dump, then let's just go along with them. If they managed to get that idea out there and people didn't doubt it and people believed it, then yeah, they might have succeeded in pulling this off. But there was enough of a critical mass of Bitcoiners who didn't give a shit and didn't buy into this because they understood that, nope, you can't dictate the terms for the network. You can only sell blocks to the network. And if you decide that you want to go and mine a shitcoin instead of mining Bitcoin, you're perfectly free to do that. But you're just going to be sending a lot of hash rate to a shitcoin that gives very little reward. And so you're going to be mining at a loss, whereas you're leaving behind a highly profitable Bitcoin that is offering you very high rewards. So you could be mining at a huge profit by being on Bitcoin and you're deciding to shoot yourself in the foot by switching to Bcash or whatever. So it's an empty threat because it's a threat that involves self-destruction. 
And these are businesses. And I think at some point, we always get these weird egos that are hurt in Bitcoin. And then they start taking this personally. And then they start really doing very stupid, very bad business decisions in order to just protect their ego from the slight that they experienced when Bitcoiners told them to basically stuff it because we're not going to change Bitcoin for you. Some of them did do this. So for instance, Bitmain, which was, I think around... At that time, it was probably producing something like 80% of the Bitcoin hashing power. It was almost a monopoly at that time. It was making the most efficient Bitcoin miners, and they were giving them out to a lot of people all over the world. So they had a lot of connections with the mining companies, and they had an enormous advantage in the Bitcoin mining market, and they were on the verge of IPOing, and then they chose to play the stupid Bcash game. And basically, they got burned as a company. They got burned. The CEO then got fired. And it was a very, very, very stupid lesson, a very stupid mistake. Uh, the only thing that they got out of it was a very, very expensive lesson. But, you know, for all the rest of us, it was very good because it was, um, it was a, um, a stress test of Bitcoin's ability to resist control. And it was a demonstration of the weakness of miners. Even the biggest mining company, that produces the hash rate and produces maybe 80% of the hash rate. I'm not sure on the number 80%, but I'm sure for a fact it must be over 50%. And yet they couldn't force the network to mine their shitcoin because ultimately, you know, this is a very important fundamental point in Austrian economics, which is that value is in the mind of the beholder. Value is not generated through the work of the producer. And this is, if you remember in my Econ 11 class, which is available on safedean.com, if you sign up as a, for a member, you'll be able to access all of the material for the course. In the first lecture, we discuss the concept of subjective value, that value is subjective in economics. And this is ultimately the most important distinction or the fundamental starting distinction between Austrian economists and uh, other brands of economists. Economic value in general is in the mind of men. It's a subjective phenomenon. It only exists in our minds. If we see value in something, it becomes valuable. We don't impart value on things by working on them. We produce things and then we hope that others value them. But our labor, our uh, ability to produce and the amount of production that we put into things does not make them valuable in and of itself. And so the best example for this and really the best refutation of the labor theory of value, which is the starting point of all Marxist confusion on economics, is the concept of the mud pie. You could spend 10 hours baking a mud pie. And then how much is that mud pie worth? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much ingredients, how much money you spent on the ingredients, and it doesn't matter how much time you spent on it. Unless you can find somebody who's willing to pay you money for the mud pie, as somebody who's willing to pay money for the honor of eating mud in a pie, that pie has no price on the market and nobody's going to pay for it. So you don't give mud value by putting it in a pie because people don't want that. And so what gives mud value is if you manage to put it in something that people want to, to use. So if you build something out of mud or if you make some pottery out of it, then somebody might value it at a certain price. And if you did your job well, that price should be higher than the cost that you've incurred in producing it. But just because you spent your time on producing something does not give it value. And I wish 
more of these Segway2x people would have spent some time reading and studying Austrian economics because that would have really saved them a lot of agony. Well, let's be honest, it would have saved them agony, but it would have deprived us of this amazing lesson. So if they'd read Austrian economics, they'd have realized that actually, just because we make Bcash blocks instead of Bitcoin blocks, does not mean that the market is just going to go and value Bcash blocks more than Bitcoin blocks. That was really the key concept that they miss. And I think it's something that a lot of people in computer science and in mainstream economics and media, when they talk about Bitcoin, they miss this aspect of it. Because if you think about it from a computer security perspective, this is an attack vector on Bitcoin. You could do this. You could change Bitcoin by getting all the miners to agree to start mining another chain. And then that makes the old chain unusable and then everybody has to upgrade or else their Bitcoin doesn't work. If you think about it as a computer scientist, this kind of makes sense. It seems like it could work. But if you think about it as an economist, as an Austrian economist in particular, you would think of it the other way around. You would see that, no, what gives those Bitcoin blocks value is the fact that people buy Bitcoin on the network. And what gives the Bcash blocks value is that people buy Bcash on the network. And then it's the subjective valuation of the purchasers of these coins that determines the value. And that determines the market value of the reward that goes to the miners. So the miners don't get to decide the market value of the reward that they get. They get to work hard at producing the thing that other people want. And then if those people want it, they'll pay them for it. That's, I think, how Austrian economics helps us understand the uh, Bitcoin block size war. And I think how it can help us understand any kind of uh, mining coalition in terms of the limitations that are placed on them. Ultimately, the fact that miners have a lot of money invested in Bitcoin is not a threat to Bitcoin. It's a threat to them. It's a liability for them. They've invested tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in equipment and in electricity. And in order for that to pay off for them and for their investors, they need Bitcoin to continue to have value. And they need Bitcoiners to continue to value Bitcoin so that they continue to buy it so that they can sell their own Bitcoins, the Bitcoins that they mine, so that they can sell them on the market to cover their costs or else they wouldn't be miners. So value comes from the market. Value is, is assigned by individuals. It's not imparted on the blocks because of work done. If the miners all decide to shift to Bcash tomorrow. That doesn't make Bcash more valuable. It just makes Bcash less profitable to mine because now everybody is focused around Bcash. And so that becomes much less profitable to mine compared to Bitcoin. And so the people who are mining Bitcoin will be much more profitable than the people who are mining uh, Bcash. All of which brings us to the Bitcoin Mining Council. The conclusion from the analysis of block size war is that fears of a hostile takeover by the Bitcoin Mining Council, I think, are widely exaggerated. I don't think they have anywhere near the capability of doing something like this, regardless of whether we trust the intentions of the people involved. I think it's just the way that Bitcoin works is that miners can't really control Bitcoin. For that on its own, from the perspective of is it a threat to Bitcoin, I think the answer is as it stands so far, it's not a real threat to Bitcoin, regardless of who the people involved are and whether we like them or not. 
I can't really see it uh, being much of a threat because it is miners. Now, in this one particular case, you know, it's not like there are miners who are hostile to Bitcoin, who are trying to do something drastic to Bitcoin, like the case in 2017, where their express purpose was that they wanted to change consensus rules. But nobody here is proposing anything about consensus rules. Nobody's proposing any upgrades to the software. None of these uh, miners or the statement issued by the mining council was not suggesting that we should change the Bitcoin protocol anyway. They didn't submit any Bitcoin improvement protocols. They're not uh, trying to change anything in the Bitcoin network. They're just out there. So far, at least, it's pretty clear that the intention is to just virtue signal about climate change. And that's really what all public discussion of uh, climate change ultimately is. It's a bunch of virtue signaling. And of course, I think what is the problem with it, just because they're not going to succeed in destroying Bitcoin, and they're not attacking and destroying Bitcoin, doesn't mean that it's a great idea. I think the problem here is that Bitcoin miners are essentially bringing in Elon Musk into the industry in a way that is going to possibly hurt Bitcoin miners themselves. I think in particular in North America, I think this is the really concerning thing about it, which is that uh, it's not an attack on Bitcoin, it's an attack on North American Bitcoin miners. If you remember the discussion we had a couple of weeks ago on Elon Musk, I think what he's angling toward is some kind of renewable energy credit system that gets imposed on Bitcoin mining, whereby miners who mine with green technology get credits, whereas miners who mine with ugly technology have to pay some taxes. A lot of people, even a lot of Bitcoiners who usually are better at detecting bullshit, will tell you, well, you know, this is a small price to pay if we have to do this. And of course, from a political perspective, it, it is a small price to pay. Like if you have to pay some taxes to operate, you pay the taxes. But I think in this case, Bitcoin is far more competitive than anything else. So if you want to open a power plant or a shopping mall or have a car factory somewhere, there are a lot of factors that go into determining what makes this place good or bad as a location. And taxation is only one of them. In the case of Bitcoin mining, it's really just the cost of electricity and then taxation. So... Bitcoin miners are extremely mobile, so they can move anywhere. And places that end up imposing taxes are just essentially donating Satoshis to places that don't. Because you're just going to decrease the efficiency of miners by punishing the ones that are able to mine most efficiently and rewarding the ones that are able to mine less efficiently. And effectively, you're costing people in your country Satoshis. That's really what it comes down to if you're going to be imposing some of these things. In the same way that Chrysler cars today, cheaper Chrysler cars are more expensive today because their owners have to pay a part of the money to go to finance Tesla cars because Chrysler pays for the renewable energy credits that go to Tesla. And that's been billions of dollars over the last few years. In the same way, I think what the green narrative in Bitcoin is going to bring about is something similar in terms of mining, where we're going to see less efficient, but well politically connected miners run mining operations whose main purpose is to virtue signal and get green points from regulatory authorities. And these are going to be subsidized while competitive miners are going to be taxed. Of course, here it's very important to emphasize 
that the actual reality of what these energy sources have to do with the environment and the climate and the weather and this ocean acidification and the ocean sea level rise and all of that, all of that is completely fictitious fantasy bullshit, completely irrelevant. This is all politically connected. It's it's all politically determined. The idea that there's any kind of a coherent science that says why Chrysler drivers should pay Tesla drivers is, is just complete garbage. And the only way that you can arrive at this kind of garbage science is through carrying out extremely invalid, really methodologically bunk analysis that tries to calculate all of the costs. And basically the problem with this, this is how I became an Austrian economist. This is how I got to hear about Austrian economics because I was studying this for my PhD. So I never like to use my PhD as a authority because it doesn't give me any authority. But I think here's relevant to bring it up, which is that I bumped my head against this question for quite a few years of trying to figure out what are the cumulative emission effects of this thing or that energy use. And the short answer is that you can't calculate something like this because of the economic calculation problem. It's not possible to calculate what the world would look like if we use this versus a world would look like if we use that, because you can't express the result of any such calculation in anything objective. The result of any such calculation is ultimately subjective and it's subjective to the billions of people that are involved. So you don't get to say that this is good or that is bad because it is good or bad for you, or because it's good or bad according to the metric that you say, ultimately every single person gets to decide about what they want to do, and their preferences are what determine how the world ends up looking. And they act every moment to try and make the world better for themselves. We can't perform central calculation. We can't just go and make a central plan where we calculate everybody's potential decisions, all the things that they could possibly do in order to consume energy in one way or the other. We can't go over all of these possibilities in an extremely complex system and figure out what the net benefit is to every individual and what the net cost is to every individual. It's just mathematically intractable as a problem. First, because of the complexity, because the number of elements involved in this question, each individualism is a gigantic equation of many, many variables. But secondly, because ultimately there are no constants in human action. You're looking at human beings acting. There's no constant with which to measure things with because the unit of analysis is the individual themselves. And we can't aggregate all individuals into one individual. And so thinking hard about this question and trying to figure out whether biofuels in particular were good or bad for the environment made me, the more you think about it, the more critically you think about it, you realize that there are no right and wrong answers to those questions because you're discussing an entirely different hypothetical question which you will never be able to calculate. What would the world look like if we had 10% more biofuels? Who knows? We can't even predict how things will go in any of this. What's going to happen to the production? How much CO2 is going to come from the deforestation that happens in order to grow the biofuels? But how much CO2 do we save from the fossil fuel production? Think about all the knock-on effects of the supply chain, and it clearly becomes intractable for anybody who wants to be honest about it. However, nobody in this entire industry is honest about the way it works. The way it works is purely political. So they're going to calculate things in the way that makes sense for the people who are pushing for those things. And so I think where this is relevant in the case of Bitcoin is that, for instance, there are a lot of miners who mine on uh, fossil fuel fields 
And what they do is that they mine on methane gas, on flared methane gas. We had an interview with Steve Barber in one of the earlier podcasts, and I urge you to check it out. We had a discussion with Steve Barber, whose company Upstream Inc., they do this as a, a business model where they give you, you know, a data center that you would install on your oil field. And instead of flaring methane, which is what oil companies, oil wells have to do, usually have to do, because it's very expensive to move methane. Methane is pretty cheap and it's too expensive to move it around. And if you wanted to transport it from isolated wells, it becomes uneconomical. So it makes more sense to just burn it, take out the oil and burn the methane. Well, instead of burning the methane, you can run the Bitcoin miners on it. And then that's reducing the amount of methane emissions into the atmosphere. So some Bitcoin miners might be thinking, oh, well, you know, we're running our miners on methane, spare methane. So clearly that's going to count as being sustainable and we're going to get green credit points for this. I'm fairly certain that that won't be the case. I don't think you're going to be getting... In reality, actually, if you care about emissions, what these data centers do is enormous in terms of the reduction of the emissions that they are able to bring about. But you're not going to be getting it because the people that are going to be pushing it are going to be pushing it for themselves. They're not going to be pushing it for the oil industry. And they hate the oil industry because they are (laughs) illiterate and not very bright people who think the world that they live in is possible without oil. And also we've discussed that extensively here. We had Alex Epstein talking about the moral case for fossil fuels. And I've also had a couple of episodes on the energy consumption of Bitcoin. Ultimately, fossil fuels, uh, hydrocarbons are the reason we have the modern world. The ability to utilize this highly mobile energy is what has given us the industrial revolution. And without them, we go back to pre-industrial age, we go back to barely surviving winter, we go back to subsistence agriculture, we go back to um, misery and lack of education, we lose the printing press more or less at the scale that we have today. We're highly dependent on those oils. And I think the dangerous thing about the Bitcoin Mining Council is the legitimation of this narrative of the green huckster narrative. It's the same narrative that priests have always tried to popularize in primitive societies, which is that the weather is changing, the weather is bad, the storm is going to come, and it's all because of you. You are the reason that bad weather happens. And the only way you can fix this is if you give me money. And this is how it used to be done in most societies. In modern societies, it's done on industrial scale, where hucksters like uh, Elon Musk and Al Gore and other professionals of this industry will uh, virtue signal about the dangers of carbon dioxide uh, rising. Incidentally, for those who are new to this here, carbon dioxide's concentration in the atmosphere is 280 parts per million. So out of every 1 million particulates in the atmosphere, 280 are CO2. Well, 280 was the concentration 200 years ago before the Industrial Revolution, and now it's at 400 or 410 parts per million. So we're talking about an enormously, infinitely tiny number of uh, CO2 molecules in the atmosphere. It's not like we're going to suffocate. We're still less than, I think, about a 20-fold. We need to up the CO2 something like 20-fold before the atmosphere becomes uncomfortable for human beings. We've still got an enormous, enormous way to go. And as far as we know, the only effect of increasing CO2 concentrations, the only one for which solid evidence exists, there are a lot of people that talk about, well, CO2 is causing this and causing that. The only one for which we have solid convincing evidence is that it 
accelerates plant growth. Some people say it causes warming. Perhaps, perhaps not. It's highly questionable as an idea. The data behind it is completely fiat-type data. And I discussed this in the fiat standard. But what we know is that more CO2 leads to more plant growth. And what we know is that our modern life, our modern technology, electricity and everything that it enables would not be possible without hydrocarbons and without emitting CO2. So the really devious and idiotic thing about the uh, green hysteria scam is that these people have absolutely nothing to demonstrate why exactly CO2 is going to be a disaster for the earth. So there's all these scare stories and all these stupid movies that are done for dimwits about, you know, well, the oceans are going to rise and then the ice caps are going to melt and we're all going to die. And then, you know, we'll only be able to survive on 10% of the Earth's surface will remain over water. There's all these amazing stories about what's going to happen, but there's absolutely nothing that you can see with clear evidence, with anything close to scientific proof. And the reason for that is we've had 20 years of people stoking the flames of this hysteria. Well, more, 30 years or something. But 20 years of really hardcore flames stoking. Things really went into overdrive when Al Gore lost the presidential election. And this was basically his consolation prize. He became a billionaire basically by pumping all these green scams. So it's been 20 years now. You know, 20 years we've had a lot of people making a lot of money on all of these things. And a lot of scare stories about temperatures rising. But nothing, nothing with falsifiable predictions that have been validated over time. If you're trying to tell us that the Earth's temperature is going to rise by three Celsius by the end of the century or whatever, then how about you show me an accurate record for what happens between 2001 and 2021? We have millions of papers being churned out by Fiat Academia, making all kinds of different predictions. None of them are able to make, it's all modeling. They make models about the future, but they never go back to revisit their models and check their track records because it's all fiat science and there's no need for any kind of intellectual honesty. As long as you tick the boxes of the people who finance you, then uh, you get along with it. So we don't see any kind of convincing evidence that shows us in a substantive way what is going to happen. Formulated in a scientific statement, formulated as a hypothesis. If carbon dioxide emissions over the next year go up by this much, then we would expect temperatures to increase by that much and we'd expect sea levels to rise by this much or the ocean to acidify or whatever, the spotted deer of the Himalayas goes extinct. Make falsifiable predictions and then come back to us five years later and uh, show us these things happening and show us the trends in these things and how they're going to continue and then maybe we'll talk. But as long as you're just showing us projections and models, you'll have to excuse the incredulity. The devious thing here is that we're supposed to take the damages of CO2 as if they're real to the world and devastating, and it's the end of the world, and we should apply this idiotic precautionary principle to the concept of CO2 damage because CO2 is uniquely evil. And yet we can't for a second think about the costs of suspending CO2 production because if you start thinking about what it would take to stop producing CO2, you quickly realize this is essentially suicide. You produce CO2 every minute you're alive by breathing in and out. That's just what living things do. Living things are machines for making CO2, basically. You consume oxygen and you produce CO2. Plants consume CO2 as well, and that's what allows them to grow. 
So CO2 is part of a natural cycle. It's an essential compound in all living things. It has existed in the atmosphere throughout history. We think we have much bigger variations in CO2 level throughout history and much bigger variations in Earth temperature throughout history without humans being involved in any sense whatsoever. We know that the River Thames in London used to freeze over in the winter, and now it doesn't anymore. So there are changes in the weather happening, but that's the idea that it is being driven by CO2, I think is extremely lacking in any kind of evidence. And it's absolutely insane that we're supposed to not question that or question the idea that we can just suspend the consumption of fossil fuels, that we can just go and skip fossil fuels and replace them with wind and solar and other fake virtue signaling bullshit. And then we can still maintain the standard of living that we have. If we were to get rid of hydrocarbons, if we stopped burning hydrocarbons, we would literally trigger a mass die-off event. The world would come crashing down. There are so many cities that only exist because of the modern energy infrastructure that is allowed by hydrocarbons. And these would start to fall apart and people in them would start to starve. Food production would collapse without hydrocarbons. Transportation would collapse. The idea that we have an alternative choice in all of those things is complete fantasy. It's fiat fantasy. People think, all right, we should just quit fossil fuels and then things will be fine. It's childish fantasy promoted by childish figures like Elon Musk because it works on the kind of childish people who like these kinds of authority figures that don't think about things and just do what feels right. So it feels like it would be, let's upgrade our iPhone in from having the black cover to having the golden cover or having the silver cover, because now it's going to look nicer. This is what people think about it. Let's get rid of this infrastructure that we have that is dependent on hydrocarbons and instead replace it with something else as if it's like a, a cosmetic feature rather than the fundamental engineering uh, the fundamental engineering breakthrough that makes modern society possible. You're taking out the fundamental engine of a car and saying, let's replace the engine with an ice cream maker because ice cream makers are green energy or ice cream makers are purple energy. It's exactly as nonsensical as this. You know, if you don't watch TV regularly, this is what it sounds like. It's like a child looking at a car and saying, you know what, daddy, there's this big engine in the car. I don't know what it's doing there. I don't do anything with it. I don't like that engine. Why don't we remove that engine and put an ice cream car in there? And then when we're driving, we'll always have ice cream in the car. This is exactly what it sounds like if you have the slightest understanding of how engineering works. If you think that the car is going to run on an ice cream machine, you're not going to make it. Maybe you could do that as a get away with it if you're under six or seven. But if you're an adult who thinks in these terms, your vision of the world is highly incongruent with reality. Ice cream machines can't run cars. And if you want to be in a car, it has to have an engine. You may not understand why, but you need to <laughs> understand, you know, you don't have to deal with it. But if you take the engine out, it's not going to be a car. It's going to be a very ugly ice cream machine. If you keep the engine in, the car is going to run.
And so really, this is the healthy way of understanding the uh, green hysteria people, that what they're asking for is not, they think of it as if, let's just change the iPhone cover from uh, pink to white or whatever. Let's just make this small cosmetics change to our civilization. But what they're actually asking for is the insane replacement of the technology that makes their life possible with something as ridiculous and as unworkable as an ice cream machine. And that's what solar energy and wind energy being used to generate electricity is the equivalent of. I mean, you can put an ice cream machine in the car, but it's only going to be there if there's an engine that's able to operate it. And that's what the case is with all of these supposedly sustainable energy sources. You can't run a grid on solar or wind. You can't even build solar or wind without fossil fuels. You just uh, need them you need to have fossil fuels producing full capacity anyway because there will be times in which both wind and uh, solar are producing zero so you need the entire fossil fuel you need the entire car engine your ice cream machine doesn't replace the car engine it's just a very stupid indulgence that you're engaging in so some people were making the joke that this is a trojan horse that you know this is bitcoin's trojan horse of getting into the uh, investment community i think there's some truth to that that we could virtue signal about this stuff and get into the good graces of the politically correct investors and the regulations that govern how investors control their uh, money and investment. But I think there's also the other way around. There's another Trojan horse going the other way around, which is that it starts off with voluntary declarations where this is how much energy we're consuming. And then soon enough, you've established some kind of regulatory authority that's going to have the, the power to tax and impose trading of renewable energy credits. And this thing is going to be entirely corrupt, obviously, and it's going to only serve to enrich the people who are behind it. So I don't see this as an existential threat to Bitcoin. But as I said, I think I see it as a threat to North American Bitcoin miners, because I don't see uh, I don't see any kind of positive contribution that Elon Musk is going to make to this space, other than pumping stupid shitcoins, and then uh, finding a way to keep his renewable energy grifts going. Essentially, having said that, I reject the entire premise of the idea that some energy is good or some energy is bad based on whether CO2 comes out of it, because a lot of CO2 goes into the production process of the energy. You need to emit a lot of CO2 in order to make these enormous, gigantic, monstrosity windmills and in order to make the solar panels. So we don't know which one actually produces more CO2. And anybody who tells you they know is just going by idiotic fiat science that makes zero sense and cannot really be defended. We can't really know what produces how much emissions. I mean, we can't know with precision how much, but uh, I think in reality, however, we can know that the kind of energy that is going to be mining on Bitcoin is going to be predominantly, I think, in my mind, hydroelectric energy, some nuclear energy, some methane flaring energy, spare oil field energy, and then spare capacity from power plants. So if there is significant mining in fossil fuels, the basics of understanding how the difficulty adjustment works in Bitcoin, and also one of the earliest seminars we had was on the difficulty adjustment and in that we see, you know, we discuss how uh, difficulty adjustment affects Bitcoin mining. And the conclusion you arrive at is that Bitcoin mining has to be done at very cheap rates. People who have expensive rates of electricity will get wrecked at a certain point. The difficulty will rise or the price will crash. And people who are able to get electricity at prices that are common everywhere, you know, over five, six, seven, eight cents per kilowatt hour 
are most likely going to be operating at a loss and many of them will shut down. The only way to remain sustainably open is if you can secure electricity, I think, at less than five or six cents per kilowatt hour. That's how you can remain profitable. That's how you can have significant mining capacity that can remain profitable for significant periods. And if you go beyond that, then you probably can't. So because of that, I think it's important to identify, even if it includes accepting their frame of reference, there's just not going to be significant amounts of mining done on any form of energy that has a high opportunity cost. If your form of energy is available to consumers who will buy it, consumers will pay over six cents per kilowatt hour for electricity. And so will industrial producers and so will commercial producers. People will pay for electricity over that rate because the average rate for electricity around the world is around 14 cents per kilowatt hour. So if you can give somebody seven cents per kilowatt hour, you'll be able to sell it almost anywhere. The only times you won't be able to sell it is if you have an excess amount of production that is isolated geographically away from other places and so therefore difficult to connect and therefore expensive to connect. So you have surplus energy. That's what's going to be mining Bitcoin. And so the notion that we need to virtue signal about Bitcoin being green, I think is completely missing the point about why Bitcoin really matters or, or why Bitcoin is so important, which is that in terms of energy, it's not competing with anybody in energy. It's only taking all of the cheapest energy in the world that is the most isolated, that is the most separate from population centers and from industrial use. It's taking all of that energy and sucking it up and using it in order to make magical internet coins. That's how Bitcoin ultimately is working. And so it's not taking away energy that would otherwise have been uh, used for schools and children and hospitals because schools and children and hospitals, they're always paying a higher price than the Bitcoin network because the Bitcoin network, because of the difficulty adjustment, it's always screwing over anybody who mines at the prices that can be available for children and hospitals and all the emotional things that... Uh, they like to emotionally blackmail us with. So it's not like Bitcoin is wasting electricity. Bitcoin is eating waste electricity. Bitcoin is utilizing waste electricity. We're able to build an entirely new global monetary system by eating up waste electricity from all over the world. And about a third of the world's energy production is wasted because this is really the thing that flies in the face of all the fantasies of the greens. It's the idea that they think energy can just be conserved and stored and moved around cheaply. And they think that this is a simple solution that Elon Musk is going to solve in the next few weeks once he's done pumping Dogecoin and laughing at the establishment on Twitter as he likes to think of it. In reality, no, this is not something Elon Musk is going to fix. Storing energy into a battery and then discharging it is always a highly inefficient process when compared to carrying the gas and then just burning the gas itself or the uh, fuel. So because of the high cost of moving energy around and storing it, because of that, we end up in a world in which we have a huge mismatch between the amount of energy that we produce and the amount that we consume. We consume about two thirds of all the energy that we produce and the rest has to be wasted, not because we're just extremely wasteful, just because it's gonna have to be not utilized at the time that it is needed. We have a lot of energy that goes to waste because we are unable to use it at the right time and at the right place. And so 
it ends up not being used. An example of that is the methane that is flared on Earth. Other examples of that are grids that have spare capacity and an enormous amount of energy is lost in transmission. And because of that, Bitcoin can grow by eating into that energy. And so it doesn't have to justify itself to anybody because it can grow by eating into that energy. And of course, the real justification and the real point why Bitcoin has nothing to answer to anybody is that people choose to pay for Bitcoin. It's not wasting any electricity and it's not wasting anybody's resources because everybody involved is doing so voluntarily. Nobody has been forced into using Bitcoin. Everybody is voluntarily in the system. And 